All right, good morning again, everybody. So today we are starting a new series in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and it gives us a vision of what the future holds, where it's headed. It's also a notoriously difficult book to interpret, uh, or at least significant portions of it are. And some people have taken those uh, notoriously difficult passages and they have made bold claims about knowing exactly what they mean, only to be embarrassed later. Uh, Case in point, here is a book that I do not recommend. It's called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988 by Edgar C. Wiseman. I'm sure we can all give one reason why the rapture will not occur in 1988 um, in, in rebuttal. Uh, but what Wisenant did was he did his best to understand some of the prophecies in Revelation and some of the prophecies in Daniel, and then he confidently declared that he knew when Jesus would return. And I, I read online, I can't verify this, but I read that 4.5 million copies of this book were sold, and 300,000 were sent free of charge to ministers all across America. Uh, but 1988 come, came and went, right? There was no rapture, no second coming of Christ. So that gave him a chance to write a sequel, <laughs> which was the final shout, Rapture Report 1989. And, you know, then 1989 came and went, no rapture, no second coming. So then Wisenant did something that I think showed significant growth. Uh, he waited four whole years. And then he came out with 23 reasons why a pre-tribulation rapture looks like it will occur on Rosh Hashanah 1993. So looks like, that's, that's nice, some humility there. I might be wrong. Um, but, you know, 1993 came and went, and then he was quick to follow up in 1994 with, and now the Earth's destruction by fire, nuclear bomb fire, which, of course, predicted the second coming in 1994. Now, not surprisingly, none of his follow-ups were as big of a hit as his 1988 smash. And I know I'm picking on poor Edgar uh, but he's certainly not the only person to make a confident prediction about when the second coming would occur based on his understanding of prophecy and then was proven wrong. That has happened many, many times to many, many people. So my promise to you is that no matter how much time we spend in Revelation, I am not going to be trying to figure out the date of Jesus' second coming. I'm not even going to ballpark it, okay? So... Just know that from the outset. Instead, what we're going to be talking about over the next seven weeks or so is a specific part of the book of Revelation. And we may do more, but we're going to start with this specific part. Uh, the first section of Revelation contains letters to seven different churches that are messages from God. They're message messages from God about how God wants these churches to behave, what he wants them to be like. And my hope and prayer is that as we look at them, they will give us insight into what God wants this church to be like. 
But before we get into the first letter, let's talk a little bit about some basic background information of this book. When was it written? Well, this is, this is a good thing. Most uh, modern scholars and church tradition is in, in agreement on this. Uh, almost everybody agrees that it was probably written in the 90s AD, so in the first century in the, the 90s which means that the church at this point is about 60 years old, right? Jesus resurrects from the dead around 30 AD, so church is about 60 years old. Uh, who wrote it? The book tells us that it was written by a man named John uh, who had been exiled to an island called Patmos because of his faith. Some political leaders uh, wanted to restrict his influence, so they sent him off to the island of Patmos, which was not an abandoned island, but it definitely restricted his influence if he was forced to stay in this one spot. Now, traditionally, this John is believed to be the same John who is one of the 12 disciples, the beloved disciple and the author of the Gospel of John. And we don't know that absolutely for sure, um, I think there's some compelling arguments to support this, but we don't know absolutely for certain. Um, if it is the John who was one of Jesus' disciples, then he's an elderly man by now, right? Um, if we assume he was around 20 years old when he was with Jesus, then he'd be about 80 years old now, at least. Um, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't have been him, of course. I mean, just last week we talked about how Daniel was thrown to the lions when he was in his 80s, so... Um, that doesn't mean it wasn't him. Uh, but whoever this John is, he's someone who is recognized and respected as a prophet in the first century church. He says, you know, it's me, John, and people seem to, he says to say that, he seems to say that in such a way that implies that people in these churches are going to know who he is, right? So, all right, let's talk a little bit about the political situation of the day. The great political power of the time, of course, was the Roman Empire. And the emperor at the time was this pretty bad guy named Domitian. Uh, he reigned from 81 to 96 AD. And Domitian thought very highly of himself. It's reported that he demanded that his wife re refer to him as my lord and my god. Now, it was pretty normal for a Roman emperor to think highly of himself. That wasn't unusual, but Domitian went beyond the norm. What was normal for a Roman emperor was to think, when I die, I will become a god. But Domitian went one step further. He said, I am a god right now. I am, I am a god on earth. And Domitian liked to be acknowledged as god. He liked to be worshipped as a god. And if people failed to acknowledge him as God, he saw that as a threat to his honor and a threat to the unity of the empire. So naturally, this created a situation where he was in tension with the Jews and Christians in the empire, right? And Christians knew that their faithfulness to God could potentially result in punishment or even death when Domitian was in charge. And so it's in this environment that John writes this book, this vision that he has that we know as the book of Revelation. So let's look at what happens when he first receives this vision. Uh, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Revelation 1, starting in verse 9. 
I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, if you have a Bible that's anything like mine, it prints the words of Jesus in red text. Does anyone have a Bible like that? And in my Bible, the, the quote that I just read is in red text, because these are the words of Jesus. Now, you might say, well, he never said, I am Jesus, so how do we know that he's Jesus? Well, hopefully you notice what he did say. He said, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and Ever. So this is the one who died but then came back to life. And who else fits that description other than Jesus, right? And notice that Jesus is declaring himself to be God here, to be divine, because he also says, I am the first and the last. In other words, I was before everything and I will be here forever. I am the eternal one. And what else could that be other than God, right? And I want, to, I want us to notice this. I'm bringing this up because people will often say things like, Jesus never claimed to be God, and his first followers never believed that he was God. That whole idea that Jesus is divine, the divine myth, that didn't develop until like the second or third century. You know, that came much later, and uh, it was all political or something like that. But that's just not true. It's not true at all. You know, here we have something written just 60 years after uh, Jesus' resurrection, and it is clearly saying that the one who died and rose again is the eternal one, is God. And this is one of the later examples in the Bible of Jesus clearly being associated with divinity. This idea was there from the start, but I just want us to recognize that. Okay. Now let's talk about Jesus' appearance here. Some people make the mistake of interpreting 
uh, descriptions like this way too literally. If you take this too literally, you have to believe that Jesus is literally walking around with a sword coming out of his mouth, which sounds terribly uncomfortable to me. Uh, what we have to recognize, okay, is that this vision that God gave John is filled with symbolic imagery. Filled with symbolic in imagery. It's not telling us that Jesus literally had a sword coming out of his mouth. In the vision he did, but, but what this is saying is that Jesus' words are like a sword. Okay? Because what Jesus' words do is they cut us to the heart. And they have this ability to separate those who follow and love God from those who do not. That's what it means that his word is like a sword. Now, we could spend all morning uh, just talking about the imagery here in this passage and how it alludes to other places in Scripture in the Old Testament. But the main point of all this imagery here is simply this. It's simply to communicate that Jesus is glorious. He's glorious. He is powerful. He is wise. He is pure. He's radiant. He is so awesome that if you behold him in his glory, you fall down. And this imagery is meant to give us a sense of that glory, that knock you over glory. Now Jesus is described as holding seven stars and standing among seven lampstands. And just in case you needed any more confirmation that not everything in Revelation is meant to be taken literally... Uh, Jesus clearly tells us that these seven stars are not just stars and these seven lampstands are not just lampstands, right? Fortunately, he interprets this for us. He tells us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So let's talk for a moment about those two things. First, the stars. Now, there's some disagreement among biblical scholars if the Greek word here, angelos, which is translated as angels, is actually referring to literally angels or to some kind of human messenger. The Greek word angelos actually just literally means messenger. And I wrestled with this for a while, read different commentaries trying to figure out what's the best answer. And we don't know absolutely for certain, but in my opinion, the stronger argument supports the idea that John is talking literally about angels here literal angels, because the word angelos is used all throughout Revelation, and every other time it refers to literal angels. And uh, so what, what this appears to be saying is that these churches had something like guardian angels, guardian angels that uh, God had sent to protect them and to help guide them. And, you know, I want us to allow that idea to break into our imaginations this morning, we need to realize that when we are a part of the church, we enter into a spiritual battle. We are part of a spiritual battle. And what happens in our church influences unseen dimensions around us. And what happens in unseen dimensions around us affects the church. We should allow our imagination to go there. We are part of a spiritual war, and we need to recognize that. And I think that this imagery here gives us a little glimpse into that reality. Now, second, there's the lampstands. And Jesus says that the lampstands are the churches. Why are the churches lampstands? Why would they be described that way? Well, because as Jesus said in the Gospels, we are the light of the world. 
right? The church is called to bring illumination in a world of spiritual darkness. I think a good analogy is a lighthouse. The church is supposed to be like a lighthouse. And what does a lighthouse do? A lighthouse shines a light so that travelers won't crash into the rocks, right? So they avoid danger. And it's a navigation tool so that they find their way home. The church is supposed to be like a lighthouse, a lampstand, a light that protects people from danger and helps them to find their way home, and their true home is Jesus. Now, these seven lampstands, or churches, that John is supposed to write to, they're identified, right, as Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, if you read books about Revelation, some interpreters will try to argue that these different churches represent different time periods throughout history. So they'll say like, oh, the church at Ephesus represents the time period from, oh, say 90 AD to 300 AD. And then the church at Smyrna is 300 AD to 1000 AD. And most of them will argue, oh, we're definitely in the last time period, the church of Laodicea. Um, But, you know, I think this kind of interpretation is incredibly speculative, and I don't recommend going in that direction. The church of Ephesus represents, guess what? The church at Ephesus. (laughs) The church in Smyrna is the church in Smyrna. Um, These were all real places and real churches when John wrote Revelation. There's no need to try and interpret them symbolically. If you look at this map here, you can see that uh, Patmos is in the left corner there where John was writing Revelation. And then you can see that if he was going to send Revelation through a messenger to these churches, where would it go first? It would go to Ephesus, right? And then the postal route then would have been kind of like an upside-down horseshoe. It would go from Ephesus to Smyrna, from Smyrna to Pergamum, from Pergamum to Thyatria. I think that's spelled wrong. Um, and, and so on, just then to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And you may have noticed that is the same order that John lists the churches in Revelation. You notice that? That is not a coincidence. That's because these are real churches in real places at a real time on a real postal route that John was writing to. Okay, so we don't need to go down these crazy uh, symbolic interpretive routes. We can just understand these churches um, as the churches that they are called. Um, don't, don't ask yourself, oh, is the church at Ephesus supposed to be the Russian Orthodox Church? Is it supposed to be the Methodist denomination? Just recognize the church at Ephesus is the church at Ephesus. And what God writes to the church at Ephesus applies to us insofar as we are like the church at Ephesus. Make sense? Okay. All right, so let's look at the first letter. Uh, Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. 
Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, all of these letters that we're going to be looking at, they tend to follow the same pattern, which is Jesus starts by saying everything the church is doing right, and then he tells them what they need to fix. It's kind of like a a report card. And for the church at Ephesus, he says a lot of good things about them, and only one thing that they're doing wrong. So let's talk about what they're doing right. Jesus says, you work hard and you persevere. The church in Ephesus is a church that understands that living out faith takes some effort. Especially when you're living under an emperor who sees himself as God and thinks you should see him as God too. Following Jesus isn't just a walk in the park under those conditions. And actually following Jesus for all of us shouldn't just be a walk in the park. Because Jesus calls us to a life of discipline and self-control. Now, he doesn't call us to some joyless existence, not at all, but he does call us to a life of discipline, and that takes perseverance, right? Dying to sinful impulses is not easy. It takes work, and the Ephesian church understood this. They got that. They They understood the discipline part of faith, the duty part, and I want us to ask ourselves, do we understand the discipline part of faith? You know, if Jesus was to write a letter to you, could he say, I see your hard work and your perseverance? Or would those words mean no sen- make no sense <laughs> at all if they were written to you? It's a good question to reflect on. The next uh, thing Jesus says the Ephesian church is doing right is they do not tolerate wicked men, and they test those who claim to be apostles but are not, and they're able to recognize them as false. In other words, this is a church that has good doctrine. They teach well. They know the scriptures. They know what Jesus said. And they don't put up with teachers who come in and try to tell a totally different message, a different story. They don't tolerate that. They don't let those teachers lead people astray. They contend for the truth, right? They fight to preserve the message. And Jesus commends them for that. Good job. Jesus also says that they have endured hardships and not grown weary. And you know, when you just look at all this, in a lot of ways, this church sounds like the ideal church, right? Especially when we consider what they were up against. Ephesus was actually the center where there was a big statue to Domitian and where the temple to the emperor was located. That was in Ephesus. So not honoring the emperor as a god came with special risks in Ephesus. Not only that, but Ephesus was also the center for worship of Artemis. And there's this story that I really love in the book of Acts where the apostles first go to Ephesus and a riot breaks out because people are upset that what they're preaching undermines the worship of Artemis. And it says that when this riot breaks out, all of these people just shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours straight, 
Like it actually says that. Two hours straight, they shouted, great, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this is a city of idolatry, right? But in the midst of this city of idolatry and emperor worship, the church of Ephesus holds fast to the truth. They're really good at that. They're really good at having sound doctrine, even though it takes hard work and even though it puts them in danger. So it sounds like an ideal church, right? But this church is not perfect. In fact, it's not even close to perfect. It has a critical flaw. Jesus says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, what does that mean? Well, I actually prefer the way several other translations word this. The ESV says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. So here's my paraphrase of what Jesus is saying here. I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth, but this is the way I interpret this. Church of Ephesus, at first, your ministry was characterized by love. There was a spirit of grace and kindness in everything you did, but that spirit is gone. You don't really love me anymore. You don't really love people anymore. What you love is defending a set of ideas. That's it. And they are precious ideas, yes, but without love, they're nothing. I think what Jesus is saying here actually fits very well with what the apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, it gets read at weddings all the time. Uh, in verse 2 of chapter 13, Paul writes, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I have nothing. The Ephesians had right knowledge but they didn't have the love. And without love, it doesn't matter how much you know, it doesn't matter how right you are, it doesn't matter how perfect your statement of faith is and your confessional statements and all that, without love, you have nothing. Now, you might wonder, was the Ephesians' problem that they lacked love for God or that they lacked love for people? Which was it? Did they lack love for God or did they lack love for people? Well, the text is ambiguous. It doesn't tell us, which suggests to me that they lacked love, period. Which means both, right? They lacked love for God, and they lacked love for people. At first they had love, but now their faith is just all about knowledge, and it's all about guarding a set of doctrines, and even suffering for those doctrines. But it's not about love anymore. So what are some signs that we might be like the Ephesians? I have two. First, we'd rather win the argument than win someone over. We'd rather win the argument than win someone over. When we are talking to someone about our faith or about what we believe is right or wrong, when we are doing that, we have to ask ourselves, what is my primary concern here? Is it to convince this person that I'm right? Or is it to bless them? 
which one. If our primary concern is proving we are right, we have already lost. Because we lack love, and without love, we have nothing, right? And I, ha I say this as someone who honestly has been in more than a few debates over the years where I cared more about winning and defending my ego than blessing the person I was talking to. I know from experience that that leads nowhere good. Another sign that we might be like the Ephesians is we talk a lot about God, but rarely talk with God. We talk a lot about God, but rarely talk with God. When we really love God, we don't just interact with him like he's an academic subject. We, inter we interact with him as a person. Okay, we talk to him. We take time to listen to what he might be saying to us. But when the love goes out of our relationship with God, God just becomes an object of our study, which he should be. We should study this the scriptures. Studying God is important, but our relationship with God should be more than just that studying kind of relationship. Now, the problem in the Ephesian church, it's not a small problem. It's a huge problem. Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, if you don't learn how to love again, you will cease to be a light in the world. You will cease to be the church. You'll be done. A church that is only about dutifully defending a set of ideas is not the real church. It's not a lampstand. It's not a light. Without love, it's nothing. Do we realize that? Do we realize how central love is to the nature of Christ's church? It's not a negotiable element. It's not a cute add-on. It's essential. Now, some of you may be hearing this right now and saying, hey, that's great. You know, that's what I keep saying. The church just needs to realize what the Beatles realized in the 60s, which is all you need is love. But hold on. <laughs> Don't forget the Ephesians were not rebuked for defending the truth. Right? They weren't rebuked for calling out false teachers. They were commended for those things. Those were the things where Jesus said, good job, you're doing this well, right? Which means that as a church, we should care both about communicating love and communicating truth. And we shouldn't see those two things as being at odds with each other. Unfortunately, we live in a culture right now where maybe more than ever, I don't know that for sure, but maybe more than ever, it's especially difficult to do that because people equate disagreement with hatred. If we find out we disagree with someone, we, we, we're quick to make this leap from disagreement to hatred. And, you know, sometimes disagreement does lead to hatred, as sometimes our disagreements are born out of hatred, but they don't have to be. That isn't a necessity. The pastor and author, Tim Keller, tweeted this line earlier this summer. He said, you can love without agreeing with someone, and you can disagree without hating them. To which someone by the name of Soundshark2 replied, this is Twitter, Tim. It doesn't work that way here. <laughs> <laughs> 
which unfortunately is true, right? Twitter can be a very ugly place. All social media can be a very ugly place because when people disagree on those kinds of platforms, they tend to jump immediately from disagreement to expressions of hatred. But at the same time, what Keller is saying is true, right? We should be able to express disagreement with someone without hating them and without coming across as if we hate them. It's not natural to do that, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is possible. And that's what God wanted from the Ephesians, right? He wanted them to con contend for truth. He commended them for that, right? But he wanted them to do it with love. And they weren't doing it with love. They didn't have love. I think most of us are aware that our country is pretty divided right now. Um, people, people are angry. People disagree with each other. And because we disagree, often our disagreements lead to hatred. And who wants to have a dialogue with someone that they think hates them? Does that work? No. I mean, you might want to have a shouting match or a put-down contest or something like that, but you don't want to have a meaningful dialogue with someone who you think hates you, right? And so because of this tendency that we have to jump immediately from disagreement to hatred, we don't have very many meaningful dialogues about controversial issues with each other. And because of that, people have an even harder time understanding another perspective, right? Because there's not this dialogue across tribes and across um, beliefs. As Christians, we should be showing a better way. We should be lampstands, lighthouses that, that show a better way. Because we should be the kind of people who can contend for the truth but without a hint of hatred. We should be the kind of people who can unapologetically disagree, but do so in a way that humanizes the person we're talking to rather than demean them. That's what the Ephesian church was called to do, and that's what we're called to do too. And that's how we remain a lampstand in a world that desperately needs light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we never forsake love. Lord, may we recognize how essential it is as your people, as your church, to be people of love, people who will to bless others and you. God, help us not to reduce our faith to just a set of ideas that we defend and debate over. Fill this church with love, with your love, Lord. As we prayed in the invocation, Lord, help us to have power to grasp how high and wide and deep is the love that we have in Jesus. And help us to share that with the world, Lord. And Lord, let us not drift away from the truth. Let us not, in the name of love, uh, just say anything goes. Lord, let us be like the Ephesians in contending for the truth. But let us love, Lord. Help us to love. In Jesus' name, amen.